This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The secrets that are mine alone. It's coming up to two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. My name is Bron Burton. Uh, this is Radio Marinara. I'm John Ford. How are you, John? I'm doing well. We have Kent with us as well. Yes, we Paddling. do. Nice job. <laughs> Thanks, Yeah, Kent. I'm doing really well, Bron. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a great show lined up. We've got music. We've got content. We've got interesting stuff about the ocean which is what we do that's how we roll hey uh, many thanks first to tim thorpe wonderful vital bits thank you and um joe mears what a uh, how, how lovely yeah how lovely yeah and was that labor in vain this afternoon yep. he's playing at, at yeah. 5 p.m that's right go and catch joe there Excellent. Today's program, uh, John, we're kicking off with something we touched on last week. Mm, yes, uh, I was interviewed uh, for a landline episode, actually, which focused on the growing political power of recreational fishers and uh, the fishing lobby. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a little bit more of a discussion on uh, about that. It's available on iView if anyone wants to have a look at it, but um, it's quite an interesting little article, but we'll, we'll expand on that. Yeah, and there's a good summary of it. Um, that you can read as well. Yeah, yeah, the, um, on the ABC website, the ABC News website as well. So just sort of put in recreational fishing and you can find a little bit of information about it. Yeah. Really looking forward to getting into the nuts and bolts of that. Uh, then, um, for the second half of the show, we'll be playing in two parts. An interview that I did some time ago with Greg French. He is actually a well-known... Um, maybe not to people listening, wasn't to me, <laughs> uh, fishing identity, recreational fishing for trout. So I kind of excuse myself on that front, A, because it's recreational fishing. I'm hey, not I've, so... I've read some of his books. That's uh, where, that's where, ah, right. Ring, Fantastic. Ring okay, a bell. Yeah, yeah, from down Tassie. Yeah, yes, that's right. So he was yeah. in he was in Melbourne uh, to launch um, a book that he's just written called The Last Wild Trout. And it's about trout biodiversity around the world. Mm. And uh, it, it quite interesting because when... 
when the, the offer came through to interview him, I thought, oh, you know, don't know if this is my thing. Anyway, I had a quick look and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And he, he was an absolute delight to speak to. Mm-hmm. Very knowledgeable. He has gone everywhere. He, he is he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. He is the biz. So... Spoke with Greg and um, we'll be bringing that to you this morning. Yeah, lovely. Mm. And we've got some live music today as well. Yeah, well, we flip things around because we often, you know, usually our, our thing, our formula is to do live interviews and recorded music. So we, we've got recorded interviews and live music today. So Chango Tree are going to be coming in and playing for us. Yeah, nice. Uh, two of them anyway. Yes, great. Ian and Ray. They've come all the way up from Balmaring this morning. They've just come in, so uh, we'll be hearing from them in the second half of the program. Yeah, nice. Should we do some weather? Yes, do the weather. Who's I just wanted to warm up, Ron. <laughs> I, was, I was just telling Kent, what happened to these perfect temperatures between, you know, 25 to 27, 28, you know, those, those mid to late 20s, I mean, that's, that's where it's at and we haven't had any of them. Do you know what? I got caught yesterday and this is a, uh, a community service announcement. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's 18 degrees and cloudy and you, everyone listening is going to go, oh, you're such an idiot. You are such an idiot, Bron. Bron got sunburned yesterday. Got Let's just say, like, you know, yesterday, maybe the sun came out just a little bit. I don't know. I can't even remember it coming out. But Bron got sunburned. Oh, look, um, <laughs> I was, it was a school fate. We had our local school fate and um, I, I got asked to judge with another co-judge, the, uh, the the school talent competition. I have to say the standard was pretty high. It actually made me feel Who very won? inadequate. Who won? Was it a uh, clown show or a No, no. It was a year six or? student playing the ukulele and, oh, wow. It was, okay, there was nice, half a point nice. difference between one and wow, two. Okay. Both year six girls playing ukuleles. Nice. Um, amazing voices, real yeah, talents. Yeah, they, nice. were, they were sensational. I actually should get them in and come in and play here. They were <laughs> fantastic. Um, but anyway, sitting in this, well, as it turns out, the sun, didn't think so at the time for an hour and I'm looking like a lobster today. So, yes, I'm feeling a bit embarrassed. <laughs> Great skies, red skin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Couldn't put it better myself. So, yes, make sure you slip, slop, slap. Um there's a campaign from 30 years ago that's kind of punched above Always its weight. Always relevant. We're still using the slogan and it's not actually on anymore. All right, 20 degrees, partly cloudy today, but don't let that fool you like it fooled me yesterday. Slight chance of a morning shower and light winds. Tomorrow, 22 and sunny Tuesday. Cloud clearing, 23. It will be warming up and Wednesday, the same, 23, but Thursday, 27. Cloud clearing and then back down to 21 on Friday and a little bit of rain. So there you go, John. There's your perfect we get one twenty-seven. The perfect temperature. Well, yeah, right. yeah, we get three kind of around <laughs> 23s. Water forecast today. The uh, tide times we are heading uh, for Point Lonsdale. There will be a high tide at 10.48 this morning and then a low tide at 4.55 this afternoon. And the swell forecast, uh, if you're getting out there, by swell net, moderate swells, mainly southwest winds providing average surf across most Victorian beaches. Water temperature is 15 degrees. Uh, Phillip Island, Smiths Beach may have small waves for keen surfers. Mornington Peninsula, bumpy 1.5 metre waves at Portsea and Gunnamatta. And on the surf coast, um, early westerly winds providing a brief window of good conditions at Bells Beach and Winky Pop. Mm-hmm. Quick news, I reckon. Yeah, just want to touch on whaling again. Japan's whaling fleet has left the uh, port to head to the Southern Ocean yet, yet again. Um, they've, you know, completely uh, ignored the um, and, you know, refused to recognise the jurisdiction of the um, International Court of Justice, um, which, you know, came down a few years ago saying that they can't do what they do. Um, they've issued themselves their own permit and they're going to go and kill some minky whales. They killed 333 under this uh, same self-issued permit last year and they're going to keep doing it again. So, yeah, 
anyway, international law's not quite working out in uh, in the favour of the whales at the moment. We need to see now how our government will respond to that and we have a fair idea about how Sea Shepherd will be planning to respond to that. Indeed. And, um, so it looks like that, that, that will continue. But, you know, in terms of Australia, I mean, we do, our, we, we do our best on that sort of international stage. But, again, if a country is going to not recognise the jurisdiction of things that they or of courts that they don't agree with, mm. um, then what are you going to do? Mm. I'll just say again, get out there and support Sea Shepherd because they're doing amazing stuff. They need all the support that they can get. A um, couple of quick ones. You mentioned uh, vessels leaving our waters. Mm. Geelong Star, John. Yes. So the Geelong Star has left the uh, yeah left the building. It's left Australia, <laughs> um, and so that was the, the, the so-called super trawler that was that was brought in for the small pelagic fishery. Um, it did catch some fish. Uh, it also caught a few other things that it really didn't want to, um, and caused a lot of a lot of problems. And it's left now. And the, the owner of that company says it won't be back. But as much as that, that doesn't mean that another boat... I mean, there's still a licence to catch these fish, so it doesn't necessarily mean that another boat won't come back next year because it is a fishing season. It was never meant to be here permanently. It was meant to only be here for, for a shorter fishing season. So we'll see what happens there. Um, the Senate just passed... A, um, or just had a report on these kind of um, freezer trawlers and uh, certainly wasn't supportive of them at all. So we'll see what kind of um, legislation or regulation will come out of that, whether they will ban these kind of vessels. Knowing that these kind of vessels actually do do fish in Australian waters in you know, and, and haven't been noticed for many years. So there's still that sort of issue. If, if you ban these boats, then you're actually stopping other fisheries which have been happening for quite a long time from using these, from using these boats. So... Yeah. It's really interesting to see the response from both those in favour of um, Geelong Star, which were the Geelong Star, mm-hmm. and uh, those against, which was pretty much everyone else. But the, the um, conservation groups have come out and claimed it as a win for them mm-hmm. and uh, Geelong Star have basically said, well, it was we chose to go for commercial reasons mm-hmm. and this was never, never going to work. Mm-hmm. So both... Both sides are uh, promoting the fact that it was because of them that the, the vessel mm. has gone, which is no enormous surprise, I suppose. Exactly. I mean, these, these issues are really, really complicated about why these decisions are actually made. But, I mean, certainly, the, you know, the conservation groups and so on have made a, a very, very good job of holding the government to account in particular um, because I believe at the start that the government didn't, didn't, uh, didn't fully communicate um, exactly what was going, going on and ensure that those, that the, you know, that, they had kind of a trial period or actually just, just worked out what, what are the effects of this thing going to be mm. and they never ran that trial. They just sort of let it happen and tried to keep it under the... And uh, hopefully they've, they've learned a bit from that's that right. as well. They've also done an amazing job at raising awareness. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's, that, yeah, that's, that's what been... I'm about. It's about raising the awareness. So we hold, we hold these sort of things to account initially when they first... Or when they're being planned even and so that we can get a good, uh, good outcome because I do believe that there could have been a much better outcome much more balanced outcome um, from from this whole debate, but mm. yeah, we'll see. Yeah, look, we've we've um, had some calls from listeners, for a bit of feedback, which is great. Um, first, is um, uh, one listener wanted to comment that uh, you know we're talking about Japan ignoring um, international agreements and wildlife commissions, and want to bring out that Australia is very good at doing that too. Um, look at climate agreements and so on and so forth. Yes, so we're good. So the hypocrisy abounds. I, I could bring up the same example of the US never actually signing the Law of the Sea, um, yet they are trying to hold China to account in the South China Sea under the law of the sea. So, hey, look, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the international stage. Um, the second one is 
uh, around Sea Shepherd, there's free ship tours of the Steve, of the Steve Irwin. Brilliant. Um, and every Sunday in November, which would make this Sunday, today, the final Sunday. So right. get down. Um, they're open between 11 and 4. And I believe, is it at Williamstown, I believe? It is. It's Seaworks. Yeah, yeah it's Seaworks there. So, yeah, get down there if you want to check out um, the Steve Irwin. A brilliant thing to do on a Sunday. Yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yep. <laughs> and thanks, thanks to both of you who rang in. That was um, good. Yeah, yeah. We, good we, we appreciate the calls. And, uh, of course, call, please, um, you know, while we're playing tracks because we can't uh, talk to you whilst being on air. So No, that's right. And, um, and so often we have um, our wonderful Kent who can take your calls, but he's panelling for us today and making this show technically possible. <laughs> and excellent. <laughs> So anyway, the point being, uh, Kent, Kent's not out there to take your calls, but um, yeah, if you want to ring in, do do when we've got a track on. Absolutely. Okay, John, um, we're going to talk about the politics and power of recreational fishing. Yes, the politics. We should and have power. played the power and the passion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. And look, I think passion is a really is a really key part of this um, because there's a lot of people out there who are really passionate about their about their angling, about their recreational fishing. And, um, yeah, they want to be able to enjoy their pastime, which is a pastime that I really enjoy as well. And I want to absolutely put it out there that um, I love I love fishing. I love recreational fishing. I've done it since I was a, I was a small child. And, you know, those stories of being, you know, grandfather taking you fishing, is absolutely, I've been through that. Um, and I guess as a scientist, I've got a little bit more broader view about what may or may not be stopping my, you know, my grandchildren from doing the same thing. Because a lot of, th- a lot of um, accusations get thrown around about what might, you know, this will stop my, my grandchildren from fishing and so on and so forth. And I think that, you know, we need to balance that with um, with the other uses of the of the marine environment, and so I was interviewed uh, on a, for Landline, the ABC's Landline, which screened um, the other Sunday, the twentieth, um, which is available by iView, and basically they had a um, uh, talked about well the growing power of recreational fishing and what that means for the management of our, of our coastal fish stocks. So let's talk about political influence hmm. because. That's something that has really come to the surface over the the years that we've been broadcasting this this program is about the political influence that recreational fishers have. And there there's always seems to be this um, uh, three-pronged um, uh, situation that emerges every time there's something of controversy with mm-hmm. the marine environment. You've got, your cons- you've got your conservationists, recreational fishers and commercial fishers. And that seems to be, particularly when we're talking about fish, so it's a, mm. a fairly consistent thing that's happened recreational fishing groups have got a lot of power and they've been instrumental in making or breaking all kinds of different campaigns that have been run over the years why do you think they've got so much influence well i think number one um, step back to what i was talking about it, it it's a part of a lot of people and it's a part of the australian culture of the fishing you know that being by the coast a lot of us are by the coast or you know by rivers or you know it's just it, there's something you know just about the Australian, the Australian way about which is which fishing is really uh, entwined with, and I think um, think that's an important thing to always keep there in the background. Is that this is this is this is something that people connect with and connect with quite easily, but. The lobby groups themselves have been really, really smart about how they sell it and they've sold it to politicians and they've sold it on dollars and they've sold it on votes 
and that's how to get through politicians. The sense doesn't always get through. The science doesn't always get through. The long-term vision or the, the, you know, the, the long-term vision of our economy or anything like that doesn't necessarily get through. The immediate dollars and the immediate votes is what gets through, and they've been very, very good at doing that. Um, they've also got small groups of extremely passionate people behind them. So, you know, people who are really, really so into their fishing and will be able to, to carry their message with them. Um, and they've also had the support of the retail sector. So those that sell boats and that sell tackle and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, that's in, who, who want commercial fishing to grow for their, out of commercial interests and therefore, you know, have that support behind them. And I think that that's been, that's been why they've been so effective. And is that, is that really the key here? Because when we look at conservation groups, there's not an equivalent for them. So it's all coming from the heart and it's all passion and it's about personal drive and... But there's no, there's no kind of. Well, there there is a dollar component to it, but not to the same level that exists with recreational fishing. You're talking billions of dollars in in the stuff that you need to go or you can get to go recreational fishing. You know, from your tiniest little hand line right through to your enormously expensive boats and all of the the gear that goes with that. Is is that? A major component to yeah, this? Yeah, I don't think it's, it's necessarily the funding, you know, they're not necessarily funding a lot of campaigns or anything like that. I think it's just being able to have those big dollar figures behind. Um, I think that, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hard one because the, these numbers are also soft and I'll put it out there, you know, and, and if you get yourself a study done by one group and a study done by another, I mean, these, you know, the range of the figures that you can, you can produce about the worth of, of you know, of economic valuations, um, the figures are really, really soft and inevitably they're going to change they're going to select the highest value in that range um, to promote their industry and they're going to put the lowest value in a range to um, of an industry that they don't want to so that's just the way and those numbers get thrown around in politics you know this, this is not unique to recreational fishing these numbers just get thrown around and um, when you have big numbers involved it uh, it really helps if we can look at things sort of on a on a national scale i'm interested in sort of your observations in terms of requests that recreational fishing groups are taking to mm. their local members. Yep. Is, it ju- is it about exclusive access or are there other sorts of things that they're going in and Look, asking for? Look, more broadly, the recreational fishing lobbies are after a better fishing experience for people fishing, which is, you know, I, I, can't, I can't complain with that. Absolutely. I think that's a good thing. Like, I would like to be able to get a better experience, whether that be, and that could be mean more fish, that could mean uh, better access to, you know, better boat ramps or whatever, or, or, you know, cheaper boats or whatever it happens to be a better experience. Uh, at the same time, they also want to grow it. So they want to grow it to, um, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that, you know, to get more people involved out there. As our, as our agriculture minister um, said, you want to get the kids off the, off the couches and off their screens and out there in, 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 in fishing and that sort of thing, which is also a good, which is also, you know, it's, it's a good thing to think about. Um, so I, I read her comment about that and my knee-jerk reaction, and I don't know if this is just me being a cynic, my knee-jerk reaction is, but is it the kids that will be getting off the couches? Is, is putting all of this investment into this necessarily going to do that because the kids have got to have parents who are going to take them out in the first place and the parents are either going to be into recreational fishing or they're not the kids the parents who are into recreational fishing will just be taking their kids anyway i'm I'm not convinced (laughs) that this is going to get kids off couches look absolutely that's a complete buzz that is you know in terms of what they're really after that's just something to get a bit of attention and sort of make them seem a bit more righteous in what they're doing. Um, But, you know, there may be small benefits for that. Um, 
But I guess one of the things that come out of it is um, they do want better access to the resource, so as in they want more of the resource. So if you consider they have a fish stock, right, and that might be shared, um, the commercial sector might take half of it and the recreational sector might take half of it, right? That doesn't necessarily mean a bad experience for either of those. But just say you took away the commercial, then instead of being having access to half the pie, then they have access to the whole pie. Mm. doesn't mean that they're going to catch twice as much. Absolutely not. But it means that they have the potential to catch more because they're not being caught by somewhere else. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean there's more fish. It doesn't make it better for the environment. It doesn't make it better, but it means that that one group has a better chance of catching fish. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it, it's all about it's all about what's best for them. Absolutely, and that's what lobby groups are all about. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. My my other concern with this is that when you take the commercial uh, sector out of a space, it gives the government any government. There's no party attached to this. It gives any government um, the reason to say, well, we have no reason to monitor this anymore because we're not regulating any licences. Mm. As, as much as people need to have recreational fishing licences, mm. it's not that it's not enough for most governments to say, okay, well, let's continue monitoring, uh, that, which then has spillover effects across the board in mm. terms of our knowledge, our basic knowledge of what's out there. Uh, but then also you can drill it right down to jobs of fishery mm. scientists that don't exist anymore, and we've kind of covered this over the years too. What are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, the, I mean, the challenge that we have as we move to, um, say, we're giving the access to a fish stock only to the recreational sector, um, the issue that we have is we don't have a good way of monitoring the numbers of fisher, fish, uh, fishers, the number of fish that they're taking and what that impact might be or even their broader environmental impacts. I mean, really we've focused in the past, and this is sort of, you know, over the last 50, 100 years, on monitoring, understanding, the effects of the commercial fishing industry because it's always been more important. Now in Australia, and this this is only happening in Australia, in the US in places and some other countries that are actually very well off. This 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 is they have political power. The the recreational fishing lobby is because we are so affluent. Is because we have the money to spend on our recreational activities, our leisure activities. We can spend that money. Therefore, it's worth a lot. And so, yes, recreational fishing is worth a lot, definitely. But that's because. We have free time to, in which to spend our leisure activities and we have the money. And it's um, in many ways you could see that as a very good thing. Um, but this is our problem. This is not – well, this is, you know, as I say, it's a first world problem that we have. So we need to get better at knowing how many – how many fishes are out there, how many fish they're taking. The only way that's going to happen is actually a buy-in for responsibility for the sector as well. So along if, if – if regardless of who's given access to the resource, they also need to take responsibility – an ownership over the management of that resource because they're the only ones who are accessing it, then surely it must come with that responsibility. So is this the future, do you think? Is this putting the onus back on recreational fishers as a group, as a collective, to do their own monitoring? Absolutely. I think that, that that's who really important. Who controls that, though? Who monitors that? Who monitors the monitoring? Well, it, it, it depends how you want to do that, right? And so I think that you, would, you wouldn't necessarily get everyone out with um, just reporting back what they catch. I mean, I think that there would need to be a little bit more control, control over that. You need to have the, the government or, you know, the government scientists um, would need to be, you know, would need to have the scientists to mm. do that. They would need to have the skills to be able to do that and to use the data that might be coming in. This but is really I, interesting. I love where this is going. So this is potentially a, a massive uh, citizen science exercise. Absolutely. This is, this 
this is exactly what it is. That, be, that becomes a condition of recreational fishing licences, that Absolutely. if they want to go out there and catch fish, they have to report and then you set your parameters That's after that. That's it. And so that, wow. could happen with an, that could happen with an app, that could happen with a phone, or you set up the conditions that, you know, but, but as a requirement of your fishing licence, okay. you know, you may not have to report everything you catch, but yep. you have to report a certain, a certain every, every so often, and then that becomes, as you say, a massive citizen science um, operation, but it also means that as long as those that give the information get feedback on it, and that's the key, right? So, so you, you, tell, you keep telling them how well, how many fish you've caught, but they want to know, you know, you've got to give them back. You can't just that, – that information can't go into a black hole. If they get feedback on it, then people are going to love it. They're going to feel ownership and feel responsibility for it, and we'll, we'll get somewhere. But at the moment – we don't know which way we're heading. I guarantee there'll be a lot of whinging involved as well. But. Absolutely. <laughs> but if you want to take sole responsibility for a public resource, along with that becomes responsibility. Comes yeah. responsibility. It's just that simple. I think we're going to pause it at this point, John. Yep. Great point to end. If anyone out there is listening, attached to some kind of um, to, to Fisheries Victoria and would like to continue this discussion further, I think John's your man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot there. It's all right. I'm not going to give out your personal details on air. But I'm going to welcome now into the studio um, Ian and Ree from Chango Tree. Good morning. Good morning, morning. Hey, thanks for coming all the way up from uh, Balnaring. It's You have come up from Balnaring, haven't you? Well, close m- to. Mornington and Shore, Balnaring, sort of close by. Close yeah. enough, excellent. And um, and so, holy cow, the connection with you guys is. Um, it, it, I know what the connection is, but I'll let you explain it. Yeah, um, we uh, got together a couple of uh, years ago now, and um, it was a musical uh, connection. And uh, holy cow was sort of an indie roots thing, and uh, that had been around for eight or so years. And we um, just got more into this folky bluesy roots thing thought the name change would be suitable fantastic and um also need to mention that you do a lot of community um support work and uh you've done a whole lot of stuff with sea shepherd over the past and and very sort of connected to the sea and the ocean aren't you absolutely i mean i'm a passionate surfer and um we got right behind clean ocean foundation a couple of years ago well not a couple maybe 10 12 years ago when they tried to um well, we succeeded in uh, cleaning up the Gunnamatta outfall there, and which related to a lot of other sewerage outlets that spill into the ocean. Some of our governments think that it's cool to do that. And, um, and thanks to um, Pete uh, Smith and the whole team, we, um, we uh, got that cleaned up tenfold, you know. Fantastic. It was good to be involved with that. Real good. So we're going to, you're going to be playing live music for us um, sort of through the rest of the program. I don't know if you caught what I said earlier. You're probably tuning up and warming up, but um, we've got a pre-recorded interview which we're going to play shortly. But just before we put that on, would you like to play a piece for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. What have you uh, What have you got? Sure. We're going to play just oh, okay. I'm set up right. for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, quick, we're going to and uh, right. And so, what's this? What's this saying? It's called just a little bit. Okay. Say that you love me, I'll be 
always standing by my side I come and feel like we're just a child in your right Yeah One trout, you've seen them all, right? Wrong. 
Wild trout are one of the most genetically diverse animals in the world. Often used as an indicator of the health of waterways, environmental scientists are concerned about the global decline of trout biodiversity and what it says about their ecosystems. Greg French is known amongst trout fishers as a fishing identity and author in many fishing journals. He's just written a book called The Last Wild Trout, in which he addresses the problem of trout diversity decline against a backdrop of some of the most pristine wilderness areas in the world. It's a great pleasure now to welcome Greg French to Triple R to talk about this great book and the problem of trout decline. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Bron. Welcome to Radio Marinara and to Triple R. Thanks for having us now, on. You've come all the way up from Tasmania for this. I have. Not just this. No, there's a few other um, interviews to do as well. Yeah. But yeah. Um, now, a whole book on trout diversity. I thought maybe we might start by talking about your experiences growing up because um, these are drawn out in the book and your move from the salty to the fresh waters. Can we start with that? Yeah. So my interest ever since I can remember has just been nature. And one of the things I remember most was when I was five years old, getting ready to go to school. And I don't know if you remember, but magazines like the Women's Weekly and Women's Day used to have school book labels in the middle. And I remember my brother arguing that he wanted all the school book labels that had cars and planes and trucks on them. He could have them, I didn't care less. My sister wanted all the lovely cuddly farm animals and puppies and kittens and I liked them too but what I wanted really was all the wild animals and wild animals have always been the essence of me really. And so your experiences initially going fishing too, I loved reading about these in, in little boats in a saltwater environment and yeah. you described it as feeling like you were in prison. Yeah, so my dad was a, uh, a commercial fisherman and mainly cray dinghies and his farm is actually French's farm on Marara Island. Oh, right. Okay. I'm oh, right. Yes, yeah. Marara Island. Yep. So when I was very little, he'd take us out in the cray dinghy and we would use hand lines to catch flathead and cod and you'd put three hooks on and before the line hit the bottom, there'd be three fish hooked on. Great fun when you're five and six years old. And then the novelty wears off. It wears off pretty quickly yep. for me anyway. And also in the ocean, there's nowhere to get up and walk around. The surface of an ocean to me at that time looked uniform to say what I really like doing is just walking up our little creeks and around our ponds and you know catching little mayflies and tadpoles and taking them home and on growing them and all that sort of stuff and that's just a natural progression to trout and although trout aren't native to Tasmania they're wild and when I was a kid wild was what mattered Still does, really. Of course, this book's all about trout diversity and there are many different types of trout. And this was something that really surprised me. And, you know, when you've sort of been speaking about things in the marine and aquatic environments for so long, you kind of start to think, oh, well, you know, maybe there's... Well, there's, of course, there's always a lot more to learn. But I thought I kind of had trout in the bag, as it were, but not the case. So you, you kind of see brown trout and rainbow trout, but there's a lot more, aren't there? Are there uh, it gets to the crux of the problem of conservation because when I ask most of my friends, you know, why we should bother conserving things at all, the arguments they give me are actually supporting arguments. They're things like, ah, you know, like we need to support preservation of species or we need to preserve wildness or wilderness or maybe it's animal rights. The list is endless. But there's a few problems with those things. One of them is that none of those terms are easily defined. And the second thing is I really think they're secondary. I think when you burrow down into it, Nature, for a great many of us, lies at our spiritual heart and we use all the other stuff to support something that we already feel. So I feel very strongly that if we're going to recruit more conservationists, we're going to get people to understand why it's important. You really have to be out there interacting with nature. 
Um, it's certainly why I took up fly fishing, ultimately. I could easily have been a photographer or just a writer or or anything probably that dealt with nature, but the interaction was very important to me. Um, and one thing you notice with trout almost immediately is the incredible amount of diversity. One reason they're so attractive to fly fishers is that you hunt them, so we generally look for our fish before we cast and getting a feel to know where they're going to be, how you see them, what you present to them is one part of it. But the other thing is that you realise very, very quickly how diverse they are mm. and how individual they are. So when I was in Tasmania growing up and people were telling me Tasmania's got the best trout fishing in the world, you want to find out. And when you go to Europe, one of the very first things that you learn is that the biota of most of the lakes and river systems in Europe, those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lakes and rivers, is mostly gone. Is that from development mm, mostly? There's, well, the... In conservation of fish, the very, very first thing that you have to look after is environment and water flow, water quality anyway. There's no doubt about that is the most important thing. The second most important thing is to look after the genetic diversity. And the worst thing you can do for genetic diversity is to put hatchery fish into the lake. Yeah, and I noticed that this is quite a strong theme to come out in your book too yeah. about hatcheries. Let's start by talking about what hatchery fish are because I'm sure there are um, people listening right now who don't know what hatchery fish are. Uh-huh. So what are hatchery fish and, and why do you consider them to be such a problem? I start off by saying that I am not against stocking in certain situations, but I'm very, very much against stocking in any place that already has a robust wild population of fish. And absolutely definitely where those fish are native to that river. Now, the best examples I can give are in Europe with the brown trout. Since the last glacial peak, and we're only going back maybe 10,000 years ago, there's been rapid radial speciation, if you like. And what it means is that most of those lakes end up with at least three varieties of the native brown trout to that or the brown trout native to that particular water. There'll be a shore-dwelling form that feeds on snails. There'll be an open-water form that feeds on plankton. And there'll be a deep-dwelling form that feeds on fish. Those three fish never interbreed at all. They're completely genetically isolated, uh, and they retain their separate identities generation after generation. So... By some accounts, they are separate species. Evolutionary biologists don't like to do that because they've evolved in recent history and it would make our system of classification chaotic. There would be literally thousands of species of brown trout, but it's an undeniable fact. When you put hatchery fish in those waters, generic hatchery fish interbreeds with everything and you end up with one single strain that's not very good at utilising any part of the lake and population numbers crash. So when I went to Europe and I was researching this, there are only two waters that I could find in Europe with the original biota intact. Wow, they're that affected? Yeah. So okay. Loch Melvin in, in Ireland for brown trout and Thingvellavarten in Iceland for char. You cover a lot of locations that are well-known for trout and particularly with the fishing, obviously, that comes yep. along with it. So we've spoken about Tasmania and New Zealand and I didn't know this previously, that trout in New Zealand were introduced from Tasmania in the 1860s. Yeah, so they were introduced to Tasmania. So it's uh, not just the possums that we've no, taken over No, it's everything in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> think of a, think of a um, European animal, it's there in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's 150 years ago they were introduced to Tasmania and then shortly after that some stock was taken to New Zealand. But this sort of segues nicely into that genetic mixing. Yes. So in Europe every lake really had its own 
are genetically distinct forms of brown trout. And then when they're taken to the colonies, you grab a few trout from here and a few trout from there and you, you end up with a very diverse gene pool, but they are, again, a generic type of trout. You are listening to Radio Marinara and we're right in the middle of uh, an interview, if you've just tuned in recently, um, that I did with Greg French, who is an author, uh, a great author, and has written a book called The Last Wild Trout. We're going to go back to that one in a minute. Um, also in studio, we have uh, Ian and Ree from Chango Tree. Welcome back, guys. Well, we haven't gone anywhere. Thanks, We've been here the whole time. <laughs> Catching up. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about the name change. You used to be called Holy Cow and you've now gone to Chango Tree. Can, can I ask about the name change? No, because it's, it's really ridiculous and it's stupid. We had a good friend of ours say, that is pathetic, that name, the way you came up with that name. So we're going to leave that atmospheric. Okay. And, um, oh, but you might nice. get a bit of re there and a bit of my surname. Yeah. I, that's about all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> and it incorporated me because Holy Cow is more rock right um contemporary rock and and yeah i'm in this is folk meets roots it's a it's a natural evolution yeah yeah cool (laughs) bringing the tree into it yeah, that's Can too. we go with that? Yeah. We'll, we'll go with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Now, we're going to hear another um, a song from you in a second. A quick chance to plug some gigs because you've got some gigs coming up. Uh, well, today, if you want to hear the full version of the songs, we're at um, Rosebud GPO. What is it called? GPO. GPO Mornington Peninsula. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is today. In Rosebud. Uh, the brewery, Mornington Brewery, next week. Higginbotham on the 10th. And a very important gig on the 18th is uh, the Balnarring Community Summer Solace um, uh, Gathering at, um, at Balnarring on the 18th that Marty Williams is organising. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll put some details on our website for yeah. that. Can we hear another tr- quick track and then we're going to go back to our interview with um, Greg French. What are we going to hear now? It's going to be quick. It's called Passeur. I'm going to read songs off the latest album. Great.
speaking with Greg French, author of The Last Wild Trout. So we've got Tasmania, New Zealand. This is what's happened in those particular locations. Okay, so it's really interesting. Where the fish are native, you have different forms of the the fish. Because they've evolved over so long. And they evolve over a very, very long time. Mm. And once you lose those varieties... It takes seemingly forever for, for anything like it to come back. Certainly not in multiple human generations is that going to happen. On the other hand, when you take a generic fish that's genetically diverse, even if it's you know, a hybrid of many different strains, and you put it on a blank slate, you get rapid evolution and varieties arise almost overnight. I liken it to language. So if you go, you can go back to London now and it's extraordinary to find all those dialects that Bernard Shaw wrote about Mm. in Pygmalion still there. Still there, yep. But when you take people from diverse cultures and throw them out into the colonies, in schoolyards, new accents arrive overnight. And once they're entrenched... You can't get rid of them. Yes. Kiwis still sound like Kiwis, even in this modern technological era. It's interesting, isn't it? So we've gone with Tasmania and New Zealand. I just wanted to cover some of the other places um, and countries. And you've been to all of these places, haven't you? Yes. I've... In the book. So Iceland, the British Isles, Mongolia, Slovenia, Canada to British Columbia, um, the US to Wyoming, California, Nevada, and to Japan as well. Yeah. Uh, and you've been to all these places. I have. Um, and I picked... When I did the book, I was looking for the top 20 places in the world. I wanted to find that because wild fish are disappearing at the rate of knots, what are the top 20 places left? They are the top 20 places left. Mm. But if I had to reduce it down to six, Tasmania and New Zealand would still sit in that list. Right. And I would probably give the other spaces to definitely Yellowstone National Park, Mongolia, Iceland... Patagonia. And what is it about these places that make them sort of in that in that top grouping? Is it just the how pristine their environments are? And is it anything to do with the quality of the government, of, of how they've been looked after, or is it just a case of remoteness perhaps? What, what okay, is it well, that makes With this? this book, what I wanted to do was to... I wanted to talk about science and conservation. I wanted to deliver it to an audience that might not ordinarily be interested in those things. So I was looking for ripping yarns. And we're talking a lot about conservation, but... In this book, you'll find ripping stories. Mm. You'll find, you know, it goes to food and culture, eating rotten basking shark and marmots and um, being attacked by bears. And But ultimately, when I pick what I think is the best fishing water that's going to appeal to the audience that I want to read this thing, I'm looking for waters that are ideally suited to spotting and hunting the fish. The fish have to be wild. And there has to be an experience that you can't gain anywhere else in the world. So if you look at something like Yellowstone National Park, and I've just written another book that's available in America now called The Imperiled Cutthroat that just deals with that park, the wildlife is such a big thing. To fish in a river and have a 1,000 bison coalesce around you while you're fishing then make your way back past bears and pronghorn and that the fish that you're catching there is unique to that particular park, it is just extraordinary. Is there anywhere yet that you haven't been that you'd like There's to go? been a few places um, I would have liked to have got to Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia and some big lakes like Great Bear Lake in the Northwest Territories. And the problem with that for me is I do all this on a shoestring and they're very, very expensive places to go. And also, if it had been important to the book that I assessed those places, I would have gone there anyway. But part of the book is I want to talk about places that are actually accessible to people because conservation, part of it 
very definitely is engaging people with the land and the animals and the plants. It's one thing to read about it or to look at the Nappenborough movie, but ultimately to get that deep sense of place, that deep sense of attachment, you need to be there and interact with places. So I really look very hard for wild fisheries that are accessible. Is this the take-home message of your book? Is it about getting the recreational fishing sector kind of more in in terms of their thoughts about conservation? Um, I think part of it is uh, in Tasmania I've been involved with looking after our World Heritage Area. I I worked with Parks and Wildlife for a long time. I worked with um, the Inland Fisheries Commission for a long time. And once the World Heritage boundaries were drawn in Tasmania... Um, there was a feeling amongst many of my contemporaries that now that it's been preserved, let's keep people out. That's the best way to look after the wild values of the place. What I've found in my travels everywhere is that conservation is a political act. And if you don't have that deep, deep support in the general community, those boundaries evaporate overnight. Three years ago, we elected a federal government and a state government at the same time, both of whom vowed to um, rescind significant parts of our world heritage area. Unthinkable. It never happened anywhere in the world that a government had done, tried to do that. On the other hand, there was a, a great little lake in Tasmania on the central plateau called Little Pine Lagoon. And some years ago in the 80s, when it used to be fished by 1,700 different fly fishers a year, it was on a freehold that had changed hands and the new owner was going to privatise it and do all sorts of nasty things. 1,700 fly fishers get hold of their local politician and within weeks that whole area was made a public conservation reserve. And it's interesting, so you say that um, conservation is a political act, but I'm sure a lot of conservationists would say it's not. It's a, it's a something that sort of comes from within without necessarily having a political driver. I think sometimes it can be both. It's, it's quite I interesting. It definitely can. Like, from our hearts, it definitely comes from within. But to actually get that the legislation up that supports that stuff that comes from within, ultimately we've got to get legislation passed. And... When you have hostile politicians that exist all over the world, to my mind, every conservation movement that I've been involved in has been temporary. Every win's temporary. Every loss is permanent. So, and you can win an argument now, but there's this undercurrent of undermining and things seem to come to a head every 10 or 15 years and you've got to make the same case again and again. And you want to make sure that you have the same quality of advocates and the same amount of political support when the next election comes round. Greg, what do you want your take-home message of this book to be for people who pick it up and read it? What, what do you want them to take away from this? I want people who read that book, first of all, to understand how dramatic these places are, to understand that it's accessible to everyone. And what I hope is that by going out, getting involved, staying involved that the next time that there's a push for funding for a conservation group or that there is a push from a government to rescind conservation measures that you take the appropriate steps. Uh, We're talking about The Last Wild Trout by Greg French. It's published by Affirm Press, available in all good bookstores. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Bob. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, We've been speaking with Greg French, Last Wild Trout author. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Indeed, you are listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. And, yes, Greg French, I can thoroughly recommend the book. It's absolutely 
full of information, very lovely to look at. There's some nice pictures in there as well, but it really kind of open your eyes about, opens your eyes about biodiversity and heading into uh, the gift-giving season um, in which we all are at the moment. Uh, I can recommend that one um, for anyone you know. You don't need to be into recreational fishing or even into trout for that matter. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.